Hi, Technically Human listeners. I'm on vacation this week and our team has pulled one of our favorite interviews and definitely hands down our funniest from our archive to share with you. An episode with Dan Lyons on what makes Silicon Valley funny and how that humor gets at some of the deeply sobering realities of Silicon Valley culture. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the interview yet, I think you'll enjoy it. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode of the show. This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. And we are back with a brand new season of Technically Human. To kick off the season, I am absolutely thrilled to bring you an interview with the incredible Dan Lyons. I am not going to skimp on this introduction because Dan Lyons is one of the most important thinkers influencing our understanding of Silicon Valley culture. He blends brilliance, insight, and humor, traits that led him to write and co-produce one of the most iconic shows about tech of our times, HBO's Silicon Valley. Dan Lyons is one of the best-known science and technology journalists in the United States. He was the technology editor at Newsweek, a staff writer at Forbes, and a columnist for Fortune magazine, while also contributing op-ed columns to the New York Times about the economics and culture of Silicon Valley. As the technology editor of Newsweek, he broadened the scope of the magazine's tech coverage to include energy policy, artificial intelligence, supercomputing, fusion energy, robotics, autonomous vehicles, nation-state hacking, and cyber defense. Dan is the author of two of the most important recent books about Silicon Valley, Disrupted, My Adventures in the Startup Bubble, which became an international bestseller, and Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us, which was chosen by The Guardian as one of the best business books of 2018 and earned a glowing review in The Economist for its forward-thinking analysis connecting tech-driven globalization, hypercapitalism in Silicon Valley, and widening income inequality, as well as a prescription for rebuilding capitalism for the 21st century. His books have been translated into more than a dozen languages. He is also the mastermind of the genius parody blog, The Fake Steve Jobs Blog. If you haven't read it yet, check it out. I promise you, you will not regret any of the dozens, maybe hundreds of hours you will spend there. Over the past decade, Dan has given countless keynote addresses about technology and the modern workplace, including two lectures at the Royal Society for the Arts, or RSA, in London, a venue that attracts policymakers, investors, and thought leaders. Among thought leaders in tech, he is considered the expert on the culture of work and how it's changing businesses and lives. Dan has earned a reputation as a fearless critic of powerful interests in Silicon Valley, with a voice that sets him apart from the often fawning journalism that comes out of the technology space. He has been a vocal critic of racial, gender, and age bias in the technology industry, penning articles about bro culture, worker exploitation, and the hustle mentality that leads to employee burnout. He has become a leading advocate for greater diversity in the technology industry and an early critic of the gig economy for its abuse of workers. His work helped draw attention to the brutal working conditions in Amazon warehouses. Dan is a true visionary, a pioneer, a leader, and he's blisteringly funny. 
He's also a personal hero of mine. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. And now, here's Dan. Hi, Dan. Hi. So, Dan, to prepare for this interview, I re-watched all six seasons of Silicon Valley. I watched White Hat, Black Hat twice just to make sure that I got it. Then I read your blog, The Secret Diary of Steve Jobs, in which you write in the character of fake Steve Jobs. It was probably the most fun I have ever had preparing for a podcast interview. You might be the first official funny person that I've had on the podcast series, which is about tech ethics and the humanities. Real funny business, right? So I wanted to ask you, what does humor show us about the world of tech that we wouldn't otherwise maybe see or know or understand? That's a, a great question. And it's something I've thought about a lot. Like when I was writing Fake Steve, it occurred to me that there were things I could cover and things I could say in that character that maybe I would never have said in my day job as a straight journalist at Forbes at the time, you know, which was pretty uptight, which is also why I created the character because all this stuff would happen when you were covering technology and then yeah, most of us all knew each other, the reporters covering it. And, you know, we would talk about stuff and gossip and about this person and that, and this CEOs like that, but, you know, it never could come through in what we were writing. So it was a way to kind of delve, you know, beneath the surface and to look at it in, or to show things that, that uh, as a regular journal journalist, you couldn't show. And I think, Making fun of things, making something funny is a way of holding it up and looking at it from a different angle. So, yeah, I think it's, it sounds overly grandiose to say all this stuff about comedy because you're really just trying to make people laugh. But, you know, I, yeah, you know, I, I think people looked at the show, Silicon Valley, and often people would say, oh, it's too close to home. Oh, it's so true. But it also made people see the tech industry in a new way. I'm so curious about this. I live in Silicon Valley. So I'm curious from your perspective, what makes Silicon Valley funny? The place, not the show. I know what makes the show funny. That's good writing. What makes a place Silicon Valley funny? Well, you live there, right? So you know, but like, you know, the one thing we always used to key in on in the writer's room on that show is um, that everybody is so earnest and they all will talk about making the world a better place. And really, you know, they're just hustlers. They're all just trying to make a buck. Ironically, I think the people in the previous generation of Silicon Valley were maybe more idealistic and actually did change the world more, but they didn't talk about it in that way. So, you know, it's all this sort of sanctimonious stuff. And, you know, you have these people who make a lot of money, say, become a billionaire doing one thing. And, you know, maybe it's skill, maybe some of it's luck. But then they come to believe that they're experts at everything. And, you know, that's hilarious, right? That's just really, really funny. Um, you know, people like Reed Hoffman calling himself a public intellectual. It's like, well, you know, if you're a public intellectual, you don't call yourself a public intellectual, you know, like that's hilarious. And, you know, we're laughing at you. We're not laughing with you, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah. So I don't know. I think there's just so many preposterous people there, especially in the last 10, 20 years in the internet era. Well, you know, this is actually something that I've been thinking a lot about. Very recently, of course, we just had Elon Musk appear on SNL. I'm not sure that I missed much when I didn't watch that, but I'm not sure that I would have found him funny. I do wonder about the, the current tendency in Silicon Valley, but also in the broader context of the United States to worship people or to think that they have some sort of 
intellectual prowess because they've made a lot of money in one thing. And then we treat them as though they have wisdom and skill and dexterity and everything else. Why would somebody assume that Elon Musk, a Barnum and Bailey kind of like tech investor would be a good host of a comedy show? Or why would we assume that Donald Trump, a reality star and a questionable real estate person, would be a good president of the country? Or why would we assume that Mark Zuckerberg would be an authority on public schools? I guess the question here that I have picking up on what you just said is about the gap between success and wisdom and how that works in Silicon Valley and and what the consequences are of this kind of thinking or assumption. Wow, that that is a really deep question, right? I I, I try to like remember most of what you said and then answer it. But yeah, for, for what it's worth, I did watch the SNL with Elon Musk. And for what it's worth, I really can't stand him. I think he's super annoying. And I watched, I hate watched it. I was just wanting him to crash and burn and be awful. And much to my chagrin, he was actually pretty good. I mean, especially for, you know, the non-actor kind of host. They're usually terrible, you know, but he did a smart thing. He played a nerdy weirdo guy in basically in every skit he was in. And it sort of worked. I mean, he's not, you know, he had no timing. He's not a comedian, but... Um, and they, you could tell they kind of wrote skits for him and they also put him off at the edge of the skit so everybody else could carry him. Yeah, but he wasn't bad. And, um, but yeah, I do think it's crazy. For example, he thought he was an expert on the coronavirus and, you know, really he just didn't want to shut down his factory because he didn't want to lose money, you know? Um, so that's the kind of thing I think is really hilarious too, is when, you know, Elon thinks he's an expert on that, or yeah, like you say, Mark Zuckerberg is an expert on education. For some reason, they all latch on to education. They all think they can fix education. They all love to say that, you know, education hasn't changed in a hundred years and blah, blah, blah. And they sort of have vague ideas about how it should change. And, uh, you know, my wife is a, is a high school, a private school teacher with a PhD. And these people drive her out of her mind because, you know, you don't know anything about pedagogy. You don't have any idea how to teach. Right. And, and it's, by the way, it's really hard to teach and it's really, really hard to be good at it. And to then come in and be like, I've never been in a classroom except when I was a student, but let me tell you how I think you should do, you know? The one problem that they never want to tackle, which also blows my mind is poverty. And they like to say, you know, I came here because I like to really solve big problems. You know, that's what really turns me on is trying to solve big, hairy problems. It's like you live in San Francisco, right? You have walked around and looked around, haven't you? Have you thought about trying to fix that? You know, or like my favorite thing was when they had, you know, all these people, you know, using the sidewalks as toilets, right? And A, they all complained without having any self-awareness that like you caused this. I mean, not entirely, but you really, you know, exacerbated this. But also then the way they decided to deal with it was they came up with this app and it was like, it was called Snap Crap, I think. And, you know, because you remember they had, they, there, was a, there was a truck, there was a poop truck that would go around San Francisco and just find, this is true, right? They would find human excrement and scoop it up and throw it in the truck. It's true. This is true. And if you think the interns who have to, have to edit out the ums and ahs have it bad, just remind them, you're not working on the poop truck. So there was already a poop truck going around San Francisco and Snapcrap was an app where when you saw a poo, you took a picture of it and then uploaded it to some, to the office, the head poop guy who would then dispatch the truck so they'd be very efficient at finding the poop, right? And it's like, did any of you just think of like maybe putting out more porta potties, just put more toilets out there? Did that not occur to you? Like, no, there's an app for that. 
we can fix this with an app. And you know, same thing with poverty. Like, first of all, you're sitting on lots of money. Do you ever think it is maybe giving some of it away? But, and I realize you can't just throw money at the problem, but like, it is a great problem and technology really could be used to address it. And, you know, it's a complex problem with a lot of moving parts and you're not going to eradicate poverty completely, but it does really bother me. That, like when I was writing Lab Rats that left Google, a lunch where people there were telling me, well, you know, we're all multimillionaires. We're just regular rank and file. We're not Google rich. Like back home in Indiana or wherever to our families, yeah, we're rich, sure. If we go on vacation, maybe we charter a private jet with another family. So, but like, then we come here and, you know, people here are really rich. Like they own three jets, you know? And I was like, and then you drive from that and like literally half a mile, mile away, there's like an encampment of mobile homes that are all broken down. It's like these people's last gasp that they couldn't afford their apartment anymore. They took the last bit of money they had. And then the techies all want them swept out because they hurt their property values. So, you know, it's hilarious, but it's also, it makes you so, so angry, you know, and I've gone way off your question, but. <laughs> no, no, there's actually something that I want to pick up on this in that book, Lab Rats. And I just want to give everybody the, the full title for emphasis, Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us. There's a chapter in that book that, that I think really kind of laid things out for me in a way that I had not ever been able to kind of crystallize them before. That chapter starts out with a poignant scene of a limo driver in New York who has shot himself with a suicide note talking about how rideshare services have made it impossible for him to make a living wage. Of course, Uber and Lyft drivers also don't make a living wage. Their sufficient earnings are priced under that of the limo drivers, which means that they also couldn't be making enough to survive. Meanwhile, Uber CEOs, Uber CFOs, Uber CMOs, Uber CSOs, etc., are making in excess of what they probably need to survive. The chapter really made me understand the crisis of wages and the deeply disturbing nature of wealth inequality, and, and I think for me, a fundamentally new and clear way, a way that I hadn't before. The disruption that the industry frequently talks about isn't just a matter that can be resolved by what they sometimes talk about, which is retraining people for new jobs. It makes me think that disruption is actually a really insidious word that's used to justify a really insidious form of capitalism, a, a form of capitalism that justifies calculated inequality in the name of what they call innovation or quote innovation. Can you explain what you see happening from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I can say it as well as you just did, but this really does tie back to ethics, right? And, and I always think of tech ethics as being, you know, we have to build an AI that has some sort of ethical understanding. But you're right. I mean, this is the weird ethical dilemma of this. For example, I think technology is great. Technology is just technology. What's great is or bad is how you use it. And I think the people who have found ways to prosper in the last 10 or 20 years in Silicon Valley have embraced this kind of, I call it hyper-capitalism, but it's it's beyond shareholder capitalism. It's used to say shareholders come first, you know, or investors come first. Now it's, no, they're the only ones who come. Your other stakeholders, like your employees, to hell with them. Your customers, you're supposed to take care of them, but really you're just trying to extract as much money as you can from them. And I think, you know, Uber's a great example. Like, yeah, it blew up the taxi industry, which, okay, we probably all hate taxis. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it was a terrible system. You had to stand out and try to wave one down, call them the night before. So Uber did a great job of changing that, right? But then why couldn't they have just built that and paid people at least as well as taxi drivers? You know, a taxi driver in New York could make a real living. He had a medallion, you know, or that, that limo driver. 
he had had a, a really good living or, you know, he wasn't rich, but he had, he had a solid living. And they just squeezed all that out in, in the name of, well, this gives it helps the customer. But it really isn't about helping the customer. And it's very exploitative. I'm really bothered by it. Or you look at it another way. I sort of looked in that book, which, by the way, I think you're one of the nine people who actually bought and read that book. But the idea of when you look at when the Internet began or when it really caught on, became usable. Right? And you see the first thing big companies did with it was outsource as much work as they could. Right. There's this labor arbitrage. So intellectual work went to India and physical manufacturing went to China. But this is blew out as much work as they could and, and hollowed out their companies. Okay, you say, okay, that's what tech does, and maybe that's super efficient. But, you know, and the, 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 the line is always that, but don't worry, because now tech is going to create all these new things. Like a robot's going to take your job, but then you can go to work building the robots. But that didn't happen when everybody got outsourced and pushed out of their decent middle class lives, many of them union workers too. Then Silicon Valley said, and guess what? Here's a gig. Guess what? You know, you don't have a job anymore. Now you have a gig. And you know, you're not gonna make any money. You're gonna be a task rounder or something. But we're also gonna sell that as isn't this great? If you work at Uber, you're your own boss and you're like an entrepreneur and you can make as much as you want and you set your own hours. It's like, why? I, I can't believe they can say that stuff and keep a straight face. Right. It's just amazing to me. So, yeah, I think they destroyed industries, but that wouldn't be bad if they replaced them with as good or even better industries. So, for example, you know, people who work in the cafeteria at Facebook, I have this in Labrats too. There's a, a couple. They both work in the cafeteria, in cafeterias at Facebook. They have two kids, I think, and they're living in a converted garage because that's all they can afford. Right. And I feel like, God, if, if, if you're running Facebook and you're making as much money as they have, Everybody at Facebook should just be killing it, right? I mean, I grew up in a town that was in Massachusetts and there's a huge factory. I think it was the biggest manufacturing facility in the AT&T or the Bell Labs network. And my dad worked, like basically everybody worked there. And my dad was a manager and he, he was an engineer, but there were a lot of jobs in the early days making circuits like by hand, you know, like wiring circuits for, for telecom equipment. But in where we lived, if you got a job on the line at Western Electric, it was like, oh, my God, you've got it made. You know, you can save money. You can buy a house. You can get a car. You can put your kids through college. It was a great, great job. And I just think it's inexcusable that Facebook doesn't do that for everybody who works and that Uber doesn't do it for everybody who works there. I wanted to kind of pick up on that because there's a really kind of funny way in which this threads itself into season two of Silicon Valley, where we have the introduction of a new character, Russ Hanneman, a flashy billionaire or a member of what he calls the three comma club, who made his money play putting, get this guy's radio on the internet. He maintains a really flashy lifestyle in Silicon Valley. He has calf implants. That should tell you all you need to know. He owns numerous sports cars. He, he's really a parody of a type that I actually know very well in Silicon Valley, but but he's just, just barely, I think, a parody. He's careless, he's somewhat clueless, and he's totally self-obsessed and totally unself-aware of how ridiculous he is. But people have to take him seriously because he's in the three comma club, aka billionaire. Three commas refers to the three commas that separate the zeros in billion. I think that he gets at something critical about the relationship between Silicon Valley as a technological space full of dorky engineers and people driven by the idea of making a world a better place, and Silicon Valley as a money-centric, money-conscious space driven by self-interest. So, so how do we square that contradiction? Great question. And it's, it is complete contradiction. And I think, again, to go back to 
Silicon Valley as it existed before, you know, in the days of HP and, you know, it was kind of people made money, but, you know, there was, you weren't chasing after billions. I think it made it healthier that nobody, there wasn't even a chance to get that much. So you didn't, you didn't put that much energy into trying to screw people. You know, I think the amount of money in Silicon Valley, A, attracts people like Russ Hanneman and also almost makes them want or more willing to be bad to the people around them because the rewards are so great. I will tell you a couple things about Russ Hanneman because I worked on that season. I only worked on season two and season three, and I only worked in the season before they shot the show. So the way they worked it was they had a 12 or 14 week writing season where you just locked, you all were locked in a room all day, five days a week, and just worked on whiteboards, right? And then you come up with scripts and then they shoot them. And while they're shooting, they also rewrite things. Then they have the actors improvise. And so often the show that makes it to the air would have nothing to do with the last version of the script that I saw. But it would also tell you, I was there when they were trying to figure out who is this guy. Like we wanted a, a, a character. I don't think we even had the name Russ Hanneman. For a while, we thought it should be like a Russian oligarch, like Yuri Milner. You know what I mean? Like, oh, Yuri Milner. And I was like, <laughs> that season I had rented a car from this like back alley guy down in Crenshaw who had like, it was like a chop shop. And like literally you had to hot, they had the hot wire. You had to, he said, no, the key does not work. If you put the key, then you touch these two wires. And he was, he wasn't Russian, but he, and we actually started all talking like he's the character, but it wasn't. And then, so finally, Russ Hanneman is Mark Cuban, all right? I saw all these articles of people like, I think he's this, I think he's that. No, he's Mark Cuban. And I'll tell you how directly Mark Cuban is. He is. I mean, first of all, Mark Cuban put radio on the internet, right? That's how he made his money, right? I'm going to put radio on the internet. And they were so obsessed with him. And he was shooting Shark Tank on the Sony lot where we were, we were, we were writing and shooting Silicon Valley. And they actually, Mike Judge and Alec Berg, actually, through connections with him, set up a lunch with Mark Cuban. And under the guise of like, you know, we're talking to people in Silicon Valley to get ideas and blah, 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 right? You know, but it was completely so that Mike Judge could just sit there and get him, like get, do a Mark Cuban. And he like came back and Mike Judge can imitate anybody. And it was just like, okay, we got him. Like they totally tricked him. They just wanted him to talk and talk and talk. So they could figure out like, how can we build a character around him? And they did that, God, they did that over and over to people. We would go on these, there would be like always a field trip at the beginning of the writing season. And we'd go up to Silicon Valley and meet like Mark Andreessen, who was so pathetic and just like pitching ideas and almost saying, like, please, please, can I get a cameo? You know, it was like, oh, you know, but they would, they were sort of looking for it. Like what, like we knew in season two, that Pied Piper was going to have this big, you know, season one ends with them winning that tech crunch competition. And the assignment was, okay, season two is the next morning. What happens? Right. And we were like, well, every VC would be on their front lawn. Right. But then Hooli will sue them. And like, why would Hooli sue them? Cause that's what they do. Like, if the, but Hooli copied them. It's like, yeah, but this is what IBM does. They go in and they sue you and you can't afford to fight it. And then just take your stuff. It's like foreplay. You know, they just beat you up until you have no money. And then they say, well, we'll, we'll buy your stuff. So we were coming up with all that, those kind of ideas and Russ Hanneman, I don't know how he fit into it. Like why we had to, oh, because we needed somebody to bail them out. That was right. Nobody would touch them. Nobody would invest in them. 
And so then we were like, oh, well, we need somebody to come along like a white knight, you know, because I think when we met with Andreessen Harvest, we asked him like, what would happen if a company got sued? We wouldn't say this is, we wouldn't tell them it's going to be Michelle. But like, what if hypothetically a little startup got sued by Google? Would they be able to go raise around? Like, no, 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 they'd be poisoned, radioactive, nobody would invest. So like, ooh, check, okay, that one works. But literally also, I kind of, not was annoyed, I sort of more amused that when I was working on the show, I, I would all I would read people writing about the show and saying things that I the way I would view TV too is like, oh, I think what they're trying to say is this week's episode is more of a, a, a you know an, a, an analogy about this or this and that and this is the kind of big statement they're trying to make and I swear to God no one ever 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 had any conversation like that at all. It was literally like okay, they don't have any money, shit, what works now? Like, oh, well, let's have a rich guy bail them out. Like, okay. And then it was like, okay, then what happens next? Oh, I don't know. Like, or also we would sit in the room and be like, oh, you got a great little story going and it's Richard and Jared and Ehrlich, right? And, all like, and then we'd be like, oh shit, there's nothing for Dinesh in here. And like in TV, you can't just have an episode where Dinesh doesn't show up, right? You have to you know, what do they call mouths to feed? So they have to be like, oh shit, we need a B story and it has to be something about Dinesh. And like, oh, how about Dinesh wears a chain? Like, it was literally always just so desperately trying to make A, the plot work and the jokes funny and that it had nothing to do with the grandiose thematic things. And now I feel when I watch TV, I watch it in a different way because I'm like, I bet those guys are just sitting there, you know, but, the, you know, just trying to get ahead of the, the next episode. But anyway, Russ Hanneman, though, didn't turn out to be brilliant. Remember he had the, the car doors that went up. He's like, I don't want these kind of doors. I need these kind of doors, you know? And that was just once they had him and once they had Cuban, there were some really funny guys in that room and they could just make shit up. Like you could, I would watch them and go like, oh my God, these guys, because they've been doing comedy for 20 years. They've been sitting in that room, rooms like that since Seinfeld. And you would watch them play tennis, like two of them just bouncing. One says a joke, the other says a joke. They keep yes anding each other and getting sicker and sicker and sicker. I, I actually was amazed. I was like, I used to think I was funny. And now I realize, no, I'm, I'm really not funny. These guys, these guys are funny. I would pitch something I thought was funny and they'd be like, they stick to the plot. Okay, just stick, you're good on plot and um, good on plot is a euphemism for not funny. I mean, I worked in startups before I went into academia and I had a CEO as my boss who was Ross Hanneman to a T. So that was well accomplished. Just to pick up on something that you said there, I I'm curious, you know, did writing about Silicon Valley through humor change the way you thought about that space? And if so, how? Yeah, well, especially with the fake Steve thing, right? Because first of all, it really took off and it was hilarious. And people, I realized, oh, a lot of other people get this, you know, and they like it. Also, they're the Apple fans too. But yeah, it just, it, it actually fed back into my real journalism in a way. Because I was doing both for a while. I was doing, even after I got caught, you know, because I was anonymous at first, which was really fun. But even after I was outed and everybody knew it was me writing it. And then I went to Newsweek and we had to say, oh, by the way, I had to call and be like, hey, I'm going to be covering you guys now. They were like, they were not happy about that. Right. But yeah, it made me, first of all, maybe take it less seriously. You know, just kind of see the, the ridiculousness of it. But also, I don't think satire can be really powerful. It's a really powerful way to, to actually say true things, right? In a way that you couldn't say just straight. So yeah, it made me, I guess it made me even more cynical about Silicon Valley. 
And just to trace the route that you you just summarized, you reported on tech for Forbes, I believe, before launching into what might be the funniest spots on the web, at least I think so, which is, as you mentioned, the fake Steve account, which is a parody blog that was set up as a diary of Steve Jobs, of course, the fake Steve Jobs. Um, maybe you could tell us how you started writing about the most important facts of Silicon Valley and then how you got to writing about that space through comedy. So I had like the most boring job in tech journalism in the world like i was in i was on the east coast so i didn't get to cover all the cool companies like sun microsystems and all those guys right and i had to leave that to the to the reporters in the silicon valley group. so i got ibm right and like emc once in a while dell well you know these companies are not fun to write about ibm is just you know uh, a fate worse than Dell. but and i also had a lot of free time on my hand and i also realized just about this time that something was changing in journalism and media and it was this, that for a long time, the magazine was the, that was the flagship and the dot-com side was really, you know, the minor leagues. And it was where you got demoted to. If you really didn't cut it in the magazine, you would get moved off to the dot-com. And, and it was very, very blatant. And the dot-com guys hated it. Those people resented us on the magazine side, on the print side. And I find that split still exists today. I've had PR people say in the last year, oh, is that going to be in print or on the web? You know, and like, and they definitely think it's less. But at that time, I realized, no, print is dead. Print, this is going away. And for better or worse, it's going to be online. And I'm, I don't know how old I was, in my 40s. And if I don't do this now, I'm going to get laid off and I'm not going to know anything about online journalism, right? So I actually went to the editor of Forbes and said, look, you know, I want to transfer to the dot-com. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want to go work over there. I want to learn how to blog. I want to learn how to do all this stuff. And I figured they'd be like, wow, okay. And instead, the dot-com guys were like, mm, nah, yeah, no thanks. Then I was shocked. I thought, really, really, I am going to, I'm really going to be out of it. And so I, I thought, I'm going to start blogging. I just got to learn how to blog. I didn't care what the content was. I think there was, what was it, WordPress, Blogger, and there was a third one. And I just started creating blogs on all of them. And one was like, you know, my, my real blog and stuff that was left over when I wrote a story for Forbes or a little interesting aspect that, you know, maybe I didn't put in a story or just commentary. But then I started looking at all these other things, right? And, and you know, you know, Robert Scoble, right? He's not, he's not as well known now, but at the time he was, you know, had a lot of influence. And he, it was in the early days of blogging when they were like, every CEO is going to have a blog. You're not going to need to talk to reporters. You're not going to need to have that, you know, that intermediary. You're just going to go straight to your audience. And isn't that great? And I thought, based on every CEO I've ever met, no, that is not going to be great. That is, that's a really bad idea, Robert. And, and one guy tried it. He's the CEO of Sun, Jonathan something or other. And he had like a ponytail and he was like the cool guy. But, you know, everything they wrote was all fake and stiff. And then somehow I thought, what if one of these guys did do this and like went off the rails and was kind of drinking and getting high and at home and they couldn't stop him? Like basically what Trump ended up being on Twitter, right? And, and he's a real sociopath and he's a total asshole. And, and he can reveal that heat, you know? And I tried Sergey Brin, that didn't work. And somehow I landed on Steve Jobs. And also Apple at the time wasn't really so big. The, the iPhone hadn't come out. They had like 2% market share in, in, in computers. I used to write things like, new quarterly numbers are out. We're up to 2.3, watch out assholes, we're coming for you. You know, it was like such a joke. 
that Apple would ever be a rival to Microsoft, right? So it was really fun because they were like these, he was like this random guy who was kind of a thought very highly of himself. He was very precious and very like, I'm such a perfectionist, but then, but had this tiny market share, you know? So I'm like, that's hilarious. So I started writing it and I didn't even realize, I, I was so new to blogging, I didn't realize you could see how many people were reading it. And then I, I found that and I was like, oh shit, there's like a thousand people reading this. Like, who the hell, where are these people? And then I thought, oh, you can see where they are in the world. Oh my God, right? And it was just such a rush. And then I thought, no, I better stop this because if I get caught, you know, my career will be over. And by the way, I based it on, you know, there's, there's a, a British humor magazine called Private Eye and they always have the diary. And I used, to, I used to think it was hilarious because they would do exactly that. It would be some preposterous person being preposterous. So I shut, I stopped, I shut it down. And suddenly there was this I, online people like, hey, what happened? What happened to fix? Like, I thought, oh my God, like people are actually talking about the blog that I didn't know was reading. And then worse, somebody else started it back up pretending to be fake Steve Jobs. That's where the name comes. It's like, I'm fake Steve. And I got so mad that I opened mine back up and I was like, no, no, no. I'm the real fake Steve. That's the fake fake Steve, right? Because like, you're not going to take my, no. And his stuff sucked, right? Whoever it was. So then it was just off to the races and it went from a thousand to 10,000 to a hundred to a million. And I was like, the New York Times wrote about it and that got me more. It was just one of those things. Like it was, you know, you went for the ride and uh, it was intoxicating. It was a drug. I really, I could not stop. I, I some, a couple of times I, I thought, I'm just, it's wearing me out. I do this all day. I don't do, I don't focus on anything else in my life. But then I would be walking along and be like, oh, Steve would say that, you know, it'd be like, you know, what if Steve had a conversation with Steven Spielberg? That'd be fun. It was so much fun. And I think it also gets at something that, you know, the kind of straight on business writing can't get at. I think it really triangulates or at least puts together different pieces through kind of not naming the farcical dimension of Silicon Valley life or this kind of corporate CEO cult figurehood life that you wouldn't be able to name if you were just kind of doing a straight on reporting job on it. There's something that came up that I wanted to ask you about with regard to kind of the relationship between straight on business reporting and, and these kind of alternative forms. I've heard you say elsewhere that if you read what business writers write and then you listen to them talk about what they really think when they get together and hang out, what they say in those kinds of conversations that remain unwritten is very, very different. And I, I've, I've heard you say it this way, that while it wasn't like you weren't telling the truth in print, there was something very different going on about those conversations. But at the time, you weren't able to get your head around what the difference was. But that was something you said in 2007. It's 2021. Any luck since then putting your finger on it? Oh my God. It made me feel so old. It was so long ago. Yeah. It was not like in private, they'd be like, oh, that product sucks. Or that stock is a piece of crap. And then they'd write about it going, hey, go buy that stock. It wasn't like that. It was just it was like the nuance of the place that, you know, we all knew there's this PR person that you have to deal with when you go there. And, oh, my God, there's such a nightmare, you know, but, you know, you can't put that in the story because that's like that's your headache. Readers don't care. And, yeah, I think it was just the satire allowed me to flesh it out, you know, and often I'd get it right. And then I'd be like, ooh, it turns out that person really is that evil, you know? And like, it was all, like all of us knew everybody that we're talking to. We all kind of knew, I mean, not gossip, like who's having an affair. We just knew like, 
this guy thinks he's a jerk. Uh, this guy thinks he's cool, whatever. So it's very easy to like dish that through a different character. You know, it's just a way, it would be like, you know, if you, <laughs> like Scott McNeely, who was the CEO of Sun Microsoft, who was completely full of shit, you know, and just loved himself and was kind of a bully. And basically kind of an asshole. And he sort of traded on that. He always had these good quotes and like hated Microsoft. He picked these ridiculous fights with, with Microsoft. And, you know, it would be like, but I had to write a regular story about him once. And, you know, they were nominated for company of the year. And Scott, McKinney. but meanwhile, while I'm interviewing him, he's like, so you're the guy who wrote that story about our uh, you know, thing. You got that all wrong, you fucking idiot. Yeah, literally, look at him. And I just started laughing. Yeah, look at you laughing at me. He's just laughing about it. Yeah, you shouldn't even be talking to me. Like, he was like that, you know? And you wanted to write the story and say, you know, like, Scott McNeely, comma, who is a complete asshole and bullshit artist, you know, comma, said that this year, you know, like, it's all you could do is, like, kind of, like, let them talk and let them show up. So this was in 2000, 2001. And it was like, everybody thinks the bubble's going to burst. And Sun has made all its money, you know, selling really expensive computers to every startup. And and I was like, so Scott, like, what happens? You know, this isn't going to last forever. What if there's a crash? And he's like, I actually think if there's a crash, it's even better for us because we're the best value and people are going to buy even more of our stuff. And it was like, dude, that is so fucking stupid, right? Like, and I'm like, I can't wait to write that, you know? And of course, you know, the market crashed. They ended up going out of business, get enough, they collapsed and got bought by Oracle. But it was like, oh, you know what? Every time, you know, some company is going along and then Microsoft enters its space with its own product, or now it would be Google, when, you know, when Google enters Snapchat space. And they always say, we think this is great. The competition just validates the space. And you know, that's not what they really think. They're like, ah. So yeah, it was things like that. that you couldn't really say, you know, quote someone and then go, so like, what do they say on Twitter? You know, someone says something and then they say narrator colon. In fact, he was not that. Like you always wanted to put that voice into your story, but you, know, you can't do that, you know? So it's more like that. Well, speaking of myth, myth busters in your book, Disrupted, which has been called, just to give a little plug here, the best book about Silicon Valley by no less than the LA Times, you wrote that myth and myth making are rampant in Silicon Valley. And you continue, I wrote this book because I wanted to provide a more realistic look at life inside a quote, unicorn startup and to puncture the popular mythology about heroic entrepreneurs. Inside Silicon Valley, you saw that leaders were not heroes, I'm quoting you here, but rather a pack of sales and marketing marketing charlatans who spun a good story about magical transformational technology and got rich by selling shares in a company that still has never turned a profit. I'm ending the quote there. Now, you and I share a connection to Julie Albright, who was on the podcast a few months ago to talk about mythology in tech. And when I talk about the ethics of technology, I often talk about the governing myths around tech production. For example, that each new product will, quote, make our lives better, or that all innovation is, progress. What are you referring to when you talk about the popular mythology of heroic entrepreneurs? What is that mythology? Well, short answer is it's the hero's journey, right? And I did an MFA in creative writing. So yeah, you're a, you're a lit professor. So you get this, right? But every company has to have a story and whatever. And there's always a creation myth, right? So even if things never happen in a really neat, tidy way, they're usually messy at the beginning and they're trying this and they're trying that. But after the fact, once they start getting traction, they go back and create this thing of like, we were sitting around and we thought, wow, what if you could do that? Blah, blah, blah. You know, like I had this problem and I tried to stuff. They just manufacture that myth. And then 
if then you're going to try to go public. So you need a leading man. It's always a man. I'm sorry. Right. You, well, yeah, pretty much always a guy. And he has to look like Mark Zuckerberg and he has to seem like, you know, a, a tech hero. Right. He has to be kind of good looking. Evan Spiegel is a great example of this, you know, sort of. And he's your hero. You know, I used to think when I was working at a company, we were ramping toward an IPO. I was talking to my boss and I said, like, you know, an IPO is just, it's just a story, right? All we're selling is a story. We're going out to the world. We put out a prospectus and we just tell a story. And then we say, and guess what happens next? It gets even better, right? It was just a story. So you, you even have like the, the descent into the underworld because the company always, when you're writing a story about a company, you couldn't just say, these guys are great. You always had to have the, but then adversity struck and they had to figure out their way out of this thing. And it seemed like they were going to die, you know, with, okay, with Tesla, right? They almost ran out of money, but then Elon Musk, the hero of the story came back and he did this great thing because, you know, he's a hero. And I think, you know, people like myths, people like, people like stories. It's how we make sense of the world. And so these companies have just figured out how to do it. I'll tell you, one thing. I had a friend who was a venture capitalist who told me literally this, because he went to Emerson College, which is a big film school, but he became a money guy. And he said, you know how I look at a company where I invest in them? It's a movie. I'm the producer. I put up the money. As soon as I give them money, I'm trying to figure out how I can boost the value in the next round so I make money. And then I find it, I find it a founder. I want it to be, he's my hero. He's my main character. I want a story that makes him like a hero. And then the IPO is opening weekend and I want asses in the seats, right? And then I cash out. Because he, he saw the whole, the whole thing was a story to him. And then that was, that was my blow to me. And I thought that is exactly how those guys do it. So yeah, I think it's all about mythology. And we like to think these guys are heroes, that they're special, that they're smarter than everybody else. You know, you know one of the things I grapple with living and working in the context of Silicon Valley is the sense in which in general, I'm not talking about in general, terrible people or scheming people. I think that generally living and working in the context of Silicon Valley, I find that when I go about my daily business and interact with people, the people who work in tech in Silicon Valley seem kind of like generally good people. Big tech campuses, the ones where we accuse them of terrible ethical conduct sometimes, seem like great places to work. With Edenic campuses and amenities and endless events and parties and camaraderie and the people who work there graduate from good progressive schools. They love Karl Marx decals for their MacBook Pros, and they might download a podcast about Deleuze and Guattari on their Stitcher app, and they probably have a hard copy of Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens. All of these uh, thinkers, by the way, critique much of or exactly what these tech workers do, and they find Silicon Valley hilarious, even though it's kind of skewering them. How, how do we understand the relationship between this culture of good people or the feel-good culture and utopic vision of Silicon Valley on the one hand, and on the other hand, the production of culture you describe often in terms that are deeply disturbing as deeply perhaps dystopian or predatory capital or you know these kinds of unethical practices first of all i want to say you're probably the only tech podcast that's ever mentioned deleuze uh, if that's how you pronounce it and i i just know the name because i went to grad school with english lit people like you <laughs> but i think that's hilarious and yes i to your later point about they love to read these books by people who are skewering them. There is this weird masochistic thing where they even bring those people in, like, come in and talk to us and advise our CEO. And it's like, yeah, we think you're assholes. Well, God, tell me more, you know, and they don't change, but they just like to hear it, I guess. I think because often they're people that no one ever tells them anything except what they think they want to hear. So 
it's maybe refreshing for them to get that. I, I never got that. They just think I'm an asshole. They never say, hey, come in and, you know, tell us we're assholes to our face. Like, you know, we'll pay you for it. Like, no, I, I don't get that stuff. I agree with you on the people, though. Everybody, pretty much everybody I've met, not everybody, most people I've met in technology have been fantastic people. And I've made really, really good friends uh, from, from people I covered. Microsoft is a great example. You know, they have such a terrible reputation. They were the the Borg, they were the big bad company. But I will tell you, all through the time I ever covered Microsoft, they and their PR people were just the nicest people you've ever met. Like great people to hang out with, really, really cool people with integrity. And Google, you know, I've, I've been to Google a couple of times and I, you know, I did authors at Google or whatever they call it. And really, really, really nice people. You're right. And really smart, like the kind of people you, you'd like to hang out with. And I think it's sort of touched on in that documentary, The Social Dilemma, that none of these people set out to do bad things, but somehow along the way, they end up doing it. And then I think there's a way in which they manage to not look at it. You know what I mean? They manage to not see what's going on and, and just keep going with what they're doing. And it's not that they're actively evil. It's just that you don't want to see it. So you just don't see it. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's a very interesting conundrum that, I don't know, did you see The Social Dilemma? Did you see that? Yeah, I've seen The Social Dilemma. You know, I actually had a really interesting conversation with a scholar over at Berkeley, Morgan Ames, who writes about Silicon Valley's moral vision. And one of the things that we talked about that I think is potentially a good a theory with some traction is that, you know, if you go to a campus every day that's built like a utopian Eden, and if you're offered free snacks and constantly told that you're connecting the world, then you don't stop to think about how the algorithm you just engineered maybe ends up engineering a genocide in Myanmar because everybody is telling you you're so great and the campus around you looks like a utopia. And there's a, I think, even larger disconnect between what you do, which is play ping pong and have Lego practices and get free snacks. And the fact that these consequences are so severe in other parts of the world. A second theory that I've been working with and thinking about quite a bit is that an idea like connecting the world a Mark Zuckerberg idea of what he thinks he's doing with Facebook is a particularly Silicon Valley, particularly kind of, you know, white male understanding of what happens when you put people who are very different from one another in contexts where they are constantly in dialogue and conversation with one another. I heard somebody say, and I loved it, so I will repeat it. If that were truly the case for most people, Jerusalem would be a very different place. So I think that some of those theories and some of the ideas come out of a context of a really sheltered place and that one of the consequences of a lack of diversity in the context of tech and one of the consequences of a Silicon Valley utopian kind of texture to the landscape itself, as well as to the business day, might actually be to inhibit workers' ability to see the kinds of consequences that their work engineers. Ah, so the environment they're in actually prohibits them or makes it difficult or impossible to see the negative consequences of their work. Yeah. I had Dave Eggers on the podcast too. We talked about his book, which was then made into a movie, A Circle, where it's something like that actually happens. I think that he underscores that dimension of the work in a really emphatic way. You know, I remember when I watched The Social Dilemma, early on, there's this great little sequence where they everybody that they're interviewing, they say, so what's the problem? What's wrong? We're causing, and they all go, like, nobody can think of the, the problem. And I said, they go, no, the problem is us. It's human beings, right? Like... We, we take, a, you know, 
assholes just pro project their uh, their assholeness onto a new platform. So there's scammers who used to scam one way now have another place to scam. And yeah, there's ways to swing elections. But you know, then at the same time, it's it's not all bad. I was talking to my daughter today. She's 15. She brought up something really interesting. Oh, it was this Reykjavik thing that happened 20 years ago where they, in Iceland, they got all these people to confess to crimes by putting them in solitary confinement and then found out that it was all untrue. We were talking about solitary confinement. And I said to my daughter, like, did you hear that? Was that in class or something? She said, no, I saw it on YouTube. And I realized like, that's how my daughter and my son, they're both 15. They learn a lot of stuff just because they're self-directed and, and that stuff's on YouTube. But then there's all this other this sort of junk food on TikTok and YouTube. And then there's really, really bad, bad, awful stuff on YouTube. And I think it all sort of lives alongside itself. And, and it's kind of too easy to just think it's all negative. It's not a good, bad, bin uh, you know, binary split. By the way, I took the uh, Lego therapy and the ping pong from Lab Rats as well. So maybe I can ask you another question about that book. In that book, you start off with a welcome from a voice that sounds like the HR manager uh, onboarding a new hire. And after listing off a ridiculous and sobering litany of the insults that the employee can expect to receive upon receiving employment, that list includes, by the way, uh, African-Americans and Latinos need not apply. And it ends with, we do not offer daycare. We do offer ping pong. It's hilarious, but I think you also get deeply troubling about the way that seemingly welcome, inclusive tech companies uh, gatekeep the way that they then curate the environment. I mean, if you offer amenities like ping pong and free snacks and all interactive Lego play based leadership training events and an open bar, why not also offer childcare? To me, the justifications about team building through Lego play backed by brain science or behavioral psychology studies that indicate that employees maybe work longer when they're provided snacks, they seem a little bit like their attempts to use science-backed studies or at least pop science-backed studies to justify superfluous, flashy incentives that seem to appeal mostly to upper-class men, and while not providing things that actually many women in the workforce or perhaps underrepresented minorities in the workforce actually need in order to do their jobs, like childcare. Actually, the more I think about it, the more it seems to me that the overspending and the overrepresentation of things like ping pong offerings and Lego play leadership training and snaps are, are maybe a, a way that these companies can seem sympathetic to employees, particularly the ones uh, underrepresented in tech, without actually providing them any infrastructure that they actually need. Am I being too cynical? <laughs> No, God, that is so great. You just put it all together. And I, I wanted to talk, I was writing notes as you were saying things. So, but yeah, the whole world is built for young white men. And the companies they come up with are things like, oh, they call it like the apps that my mom used to do to me and do for me. Like, oh, you can get your laundry delivered. And somebody can bring you food. You don't have to learn how to cook. And like, wouldn't that be awesome? It's like, no, dude, I know how to cook. I really don't. I do my own laundry. I'm a grown man. You know, I can do these things. But so that's one part of it. And then the aspect around women is amazing. In that list that you read, that sort of, I think it was called like, welcome to the camp. It was sort of, if they gave you a real employee manual and told you what they, the real truth. I've actually been thinking about doing a blog or even a mini book that was just like the real employee handbook and write it in the voice of this made up CEO who's anonymous and is going to tell you what he really is. But like, yeah. Okay, if you are a woman and you work here, you should expect to be sexually harassed. You should also know that if you complain to HR, you will be fired, right? This, just know this. This is the reality, you know, and they'll pay lip service to it. it the, the thing that bothers me most is the lip service to diversity. And it really, really bothers me, I guess, because I started thinking about it in terms of age bias. 
and then sort of discovered at a very late age, you know, intersectionality. I was talking to a friend of mine, a woman I've known since college, who grew up where I grew up in Massachusetts, and black woman who's been in PR, now she's a professor, and uh, worked in like public television, public radio, uh, in Hollywood a little bit. And I said, Marcy, this is so weird because, you know, these people just don't even listen to me just because I'm old and, you know, I can't, there's nothing I can do. I can't hide that I'm old. I can't, even if I dye my hair or, you know, try to wear hipper clothes, like, I can't hide it. I just, you know, I can't go back and make myself 30. And she said to me, dude, welcome to my whole fucking life. I'm a black woman. I was like, oh shit. Yeah. You know? And I, then I talked a lot more with her and other people. I just, I don't get how they keep getting away with this bullshit about African-Americans. It's just really, really bothers me. I don't even, not that I don't know why. I don't know why it bothers me more than anything else. Because I feel like it's, you know, the movie Hidden Figures about the three black women who worked at NASA in the 60s and helped do the math that put astronauts on the moon or into orbit, you know? It occurred to me, a black woman today at Apple or any other Silicon Valley company is even more isolated than those three black women were at NASA a half century ago. And that that is astounding. Like, I almost think you have to go out of your way to have that few people of color in your industry. You, you have to. I mean, how could you, even in Boston, which is a very segregated city, I would look around that company and go, look at that. There are 500 people here and pretty much all of them look exactly the same. Just young white kids who look like they hang out at Cape Cod. You know, they dress the same. It was just cookie cutter people. And I don't know. And, and they also always treat diversity as like, they don't say it, but they're like, oh, it'd be nice to do. We'll hire a you know, diversity officer and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we don't want to slow down. We don't have to slow down like to worry about this when we're just charging ahead. And it's like, well, really? And then they also say the thing like, we're not going to lower our standards. Like, I hear that and I'm like, you know what? Fuck you. And I don't know. I think it's just, you're right. It's just young white men who have essentially been told all their lives that they're great. You know, from the time they were in kindergarten on, they were just the greatest. And they can't see, they can't see themselves in any real way. I wanted to actually ask you about ageism in tech and the consequences of that, not just on the individual who experiences it, but for the work sector and for the culture, but also for the consequences on ideation and development of products themselves. I've been quite concerned about the growing disregard for expertise, much of which is aggregated in people who have had more experience. And one way and one important way, I think, to accumulate experience is to be around for a while. Being around for a while, watching things change, seeing how people work, having some life experience is gaining the advantage of a longer perspective, the kind of perspective that I think you need to be a little bit more humble, the kind of perspective that you maybe need in order to know a little bit uh, about the fact that you might not be kind of, you might not have some sort of like radical new idea that is great, but and nobody else has done it because they're not as smart as you, but perhaps because there are some negative consequences to it. I don't know that there are shortcuts to getting that kind of advantage that one only, I think, can get from a longer perspective. What role do you think that Silicon Valley's well-acknowledged age bias has on its functionality and for its creative output? I once wrote an article you know, on LinkedIn called, when it comes to age bias, tech companies don't even bother to lie. Something, something like that, or yeah, you know, like with with race and gender, they'll at least say, "Oh, we're not doing so well. We're trying to do better." But with age, they just they're like, "No, you know, 
young people are smarter. And I, I think part of it is all those things you said about age and experience and wisdom and the value of people to the workplace is they're all true, but that's if you assume that someone is trying to make a company that will really last and be, you know, a sustainable company. And a lot of these are just churn and burn. They're just chop shops, you know, they're boiler rooms. And they're just trying to sprint as fast as they can to the IPO, cash out, figure it out later. You know what I mean? They'll cut ethical corners, just do whatever you can do to get to that thing. And, you know, if you want to, you know, I wrote in Disrupt, you know, they had a boiler room full of like these, you know, white bros, just cold calling, cold calling, cold calling. And I thought, you know, if you do want to have a culture where it's just like, you guys got to be really competitive. You got to do the same boring thing over and over. Ring the bell when you get it. You're super competitive. Who better than young kind of dumb white guys who like played lacrosse in college? You know, there's no, there's no thinking, right? There's a, it's, those guys are great for that. The other thing is, I think, I think it, it's, it's about discomfort. I just think old people make young people uncomfortable. If you're a young manager, you got to manage someone who's like your parents' age, remind you of your dad. It's hard to manage that person. Also, it's just hard to relate to them. Or even if you're not managing them, you're working alongside them. The same thing with, with you know, black people. You know, it makes everybody uncomfortable and blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing. So let's just not hire any. You know what I mean? Then we don't have to, we don't have to step on any grenades. I think a lot of it was just that when I was working with people. And it's weird because when I began my career, it was at a little, like a newspaper, daily paper. And I was in college, right out of college. And there were all these old sports writer guys who were like, you know, almost retirement age, hilarious old guys who could never figure out how to use the computers. So we would, they would come over here, tell me how, what, how do I get this goddamn thing? But then they would teach us how to write, you know, because we didn't know how to write at all. And we all hung out. We went drinking. It was great. I'm like, wow, I'm hanging out with guys like my grandfather's age. This is amazing. And they're cool. You know, they're really cool. But I think, yeah, Silicon Valley has lost that. And God knows they don't need to hire older people. There's plenty of young people coming along. I hear people feeling they're getting aged out at 30. Can you imagine? Like at 30, like, sorry, bye. I don't know. It's, it's ridiculous. And I think you're right. You know, if you're trying to sell or design products that appeal to everybody, but you only have young white guys, the people making the product should sort of be like the people you want to sell the products to. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. Part of my argument in thinking about the ethics of technology really has to do with the fact that it's not just good in terms of creating a moral good to hire people who are diverse to work on a project. It's actually critical for the value of the product. You're in Boston, so you might know the context for this story. There was a study done on uh, MIT's campus, and they looked at one building on MIT's campus that has created more intellectually significant outputs than anywhere else on the campus. And they started to inquire as to why. And they looked at the building and the building was this kind of dilapidated place. It was not one of the nicer buildings on MIT's campus. And it was a building where they put everybody who didn't quite fit in to uh, any other department or you know, the people who weren't kind of the superstar uh, people in a department. And the building was old. So they had a mishmash of different people from different intellectual methodological backgrounds cohabitating in the same space. And in the context of that, they also gave them a building that was not very nice. And so people felt okay spilling things 
things and breaking down walls and talking to one another in a way that they might not in a more prestigious building. And out of that kind of environment, they have more, I think, creative consequences. And I think that it's an important study in that, you know, the more you include people from a broad spectrum of experiences and backgrounds and biases, the more likely that you are to have a product that better serves more people and the less likely you are to put out something that deeply, deeply disadvantages or causes a lot of negative consequences for a couple of different groups. Yeah. And just, or just totally misses. Like you spend all this time and the product comes out and says, boom. But yeah, I didn't know that story about the, the MIT building, but I, I, it makes sense to me. What I think is if you're running companies the way they are, it's just stupid for you. I mean, they always treat diversity as this, like this nice thing to do. Look at us. It's like philanthropical. It's like, no, dude, you're running a company that relies on brain power and you're telling 75% of the world, yeah, sorry, don't need you. Maybe more than 70. A, a vast swath of the world is like, ah, no, I'm not going to look at you because it's too hard. We'll just take white bros coming out of Stanford. And it's like, look at the brain power you're missing out on. Like, how stupid is that? And yeah, I think, so part of it is just you're, you're ruling out lots of talent that would, would help you. But also, I think you're right. There is something about people from different backgrounds, different domain expertise, right? That you put them together and they don't all have to be, you know, quote, I hate this term, but like rock stars, you know, but they're just something about that. I don't know if it's friction or the way, I don't know, you, you'd know this better than I would, but it's something about the way people interact and what's com what comes out of that. I, I think the real risk of a lack of diversity is you also have this monoculture and you get a lack of vision because everybody thinks the same thing. And so it's um, how do you get anything creative when everybody just... Nobody disagrees. I mean, you kind of have to disagree politely. I mean, the way that I describe it is that if I have a thought and I keep it in my head, then I will go in feedback loops, reifying the thought that I ever have. But as soon as I extract it, and you might know this as a writer, as soon as I extract that thought, I get some critical distance from it. I put it down on paper. Then I have some distance between me and my thought. Now, if I extract it from my brain, I get that critical distance and I hand it off to somebody else for refinement, refinement who can hold it up to scrutiny. They can then refine my thought. And you know, there's a kind of system of both checks and balances and refinement and molding and crafting uh, in generative ways that happens in that process of exchange. That's one definition of what I would call both creativity and also kind of a, a search for a uh, more valuable kind of idea. I mean, isn't it amazing when you have a good editor or a friend who's just a great reader and you give them something? I did workshops a lot too, you know, as a creative writer. And they come back and you're like, oh, wow, like you saw this thing that I didn't even see because I'm like down in the weeds with this. And I would almost seek it out, you know, seek out like I've, I've been lucky. I've worked with really amazing editors and they always just open up new things. And one of my favorite, I read recently that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I, I read one of her books. And she said that when she would be writing a, an opinion, she would always go to Scalia to read it first because she was a friend, but also because he was so ideologically opposite to her. She knew he would just find every weakness in her argument and her logic. And that that was what helped her. So, so she was able to, like you say, kind of put some distance between you and the work. You know, you're not hurting my feelings. You're helping my, my product. No, that's one of the reasons I have these conversations. Dan, in this case of art imitating life, imitating art, my technically human students are at this very moment hard at work writing the 2021 Cal Poly Ethical Technology Manifesto. Famously, in the last season of Silicon Valley, the fallen CEO, Gavin Bilson, who's the villain of the show, who's greedy, power-hungry, vain, diabolically intent in ruining the protagonist's small startup, 
decides that to regain his stature in Silicon Valley, he's going to spearhead an ethics campaign, and he's going to force everyone else in the industry to sign it as a pledge of the Technological Ethical Conduct Manifesto, or what he calls Tethics, the Tethical Manifesto. Uh, It's laughable, you're laughing, it is laughable, both because his entire career has been in violation of ethical principles and conduct, but it's also laughable because, as we find out, he has taken the entire content of the manifesto from different menus or pamphlets from places like the AARP or Applebee's or Starbucks. The statements, one is enhance the quality of life for all ages, which is taken from the AARP, are so broad, so cliche, so sloganeering that they could belong arbitrarily on either an AARP pamphlet or on an Applebee's or a Starbucks menu. And I actually, I show this episode, I use it to talk to my students and give them an example about the importance of avoiding cliches, about the significance of being specific. And I show it to them to exemplify why slogans are so meaningful If your statement about ethics and technology is so broad that it can either belong on a Starbucks menu or on a directive about the ethics of technology, it is probably too broad to really mean anything or to hold anybody accountable to any specific policy or set of conduct. Um, Silicon Valley is, of course, and I'm speaking of the place here, full of slogans. Do you see a relationship between slogans or language broadly and some of the unethical character of Silicon Valley? And, and if so, how would you describe that connection? I don't know if there's a connection. I do. Let me think. You know, things like don't be evil, right? I always crack me up. What does that mean? You know what I mean? Don't be evil. That's the only really because I like to say we don't have rules. We just trust you to be adults. You know, don't 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 be a, don't be a bonehead. That's like don't be a butthead. That's our rule. You know, but I suppose you're you know in a sense because they're so meaningless that you're basically free to do whatever you want and to be as awful as you want underneath it because it gives you this sort of umbrella of, of, over over your head, right? I do think. <laughs> The Gavin Belsing thing is pretty funny, but I'm always wary of anybody has to, when you try to write a manifesto, I think it's, like, it's a pretty scary thing. And it usually is attached to something that's not very good, right? And people who write manifestos are like the Unabomber or something. And I, I'd be interested to see what your, your, your students are, are coming up with, you know, I, I, what, what, what is there, what is it meant to be? What's the ethical technology manifesto? So it is a code of conduct for uh, Cal Poly that we are going to hold ourselves and the administration accountable to in terms of ethical technology practices. And the way that I think of manifestos, you know, I don't give them like a Karl Marx's communist manifesto. I give them forms of writing that don't usually go by the name manifesto, but are actually, if you look at the structure of them in terms of the generic template that they're writing within, um, manifestos. So for example, I give them the speech by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Jr., I have a dream, which in form and in genre is a manifesto. I give them the Declaration of Independence, which again, follows the kind of skeleton structure of a manifesto. And they use that skeleton structure to really kind of tease out the different dimensions of what a vision for ethical technology that they envision, that they want to hold us as instructors and administration and themselves as accountable to. Yeah. Well, I think because the exercise of writing it forces you to actually think about it, right? To tease out those ideas, right? So forcing yourself to put it down in writing is probably a, a way to actually even think about it. I mean, I didn't even know what, 
what what would what would the code of conduct be? What would be ethical? What would be unethical in terms of in terms of de- the technology you're developing? So they t- they talk about all of it. You know, the way that I the way that I kind of frame it for them is that I talk about both the framers of the Constitution and the writers of the Declaration of Independence. I talk about Dr. King, and I say that these are figures who are not in the biblical sense, but in the modern sense, what we would call the figure of the prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet doesn't divine ideas from God. Uh, not in the modern sense, what we understand a prophet to be able to do is to have a vision of how the world could or should be, not how it is, but how it could or should be. And then through language to be able to articulate that vision and vivify it and animate it and make it so real for those who are listening to that vision that they too can see a world that does not yet exist, but could in potentiality exist and then design the world in that vision. That's like a kind of magical, wonderful thing. And the aim of the manifesto is to both kind of set out the the philosophical structure and then really detail the kinds of policies behind that, that would undergird that. And what my, my question is about and what the concern is about is that when you have a piece of language or a term or a slogan or what I call the cliche that is so broad that it can belong both on an Applebee's menu and on an ethical technology manifesto, then you're really kind of evading the responsibility for holding anybody accountable to that because you know, your vision is un- unclear in that sense. I have a longer theory of, of cliches that I won't bore you with, but... Uh... I'd like to hear it because, you know, there's a word, a phrase in Boston for people like you. And, you know, we say you're wicked smart. You are wicked smart. <laughs> I used I to like... live in Boston, so I know. Oh, so <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, wicked, wicked smart. And that is like, wow. I mean, that is really heavy stuff. But these are, are these... Your students, are they engineers and they're taking a literature class? It's a general education class, so which I love teaching because I love having students from different backgrounds. I find that my industrial engineering majors and my computer science students are some of the most exciting students to work with because they actually change and help and hold my ideas up to a bit of scrutiny, which I, which I really like. And so I like that kind of context. Yeah, you can't bullshit engineers. I always love it. They're really truth tellers, you know? I taught briefly at, at Michigan after I got my MFA, and I always loved engineers. And there's creative writing workshops, you know, people writing poetry and short stories and they've never written before. Engineers and music majors. I don't know why. Music majors, I always love them. I think because they're so diligent and they just they just know, like, okay, this is really hard. You know, I'm just going to have to do this. And the engineers, you're right. They would always check you. You know, it always checking. Oh, wait a minute. You know, and maybe call bullshit, but also not to call bullshit, but maybe force you to kind of think a little more deeply about it. They were also always the guy, men or women, usually guys, who'd be like, you were talking about a poem. You know, you teach a poem and say this and that, and, and they looking at technique or, or short story, and they'd be like, okay, I know you. You know exactly what question came. Uh, do you really think the person who wrote this was thinking about all that? Because I don't know, right? And what's, you know what? That's actually a great question. It's actually a really, really great question because A, someone's going to ask it, right? Someone's going to ask it. And the engineers are like, they don't care. They'll just throw themselves on the grenade. They don't know Bart's death of the author. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. And like reader response theory, like, no, no, no. Isn't that what it's called? And uh, there is no text. The text varies with each reader. Oh, no, but it was like, I used to say, well, yeah, I think a lot of this, yeah, this, you know, this poet was intentionally using these rhyme schemes or whatever, and, you know, slant rhyme or whatever, you know, 
and you're just teaching the poem to sort of teach them what slant rhyme is or whatever. But they used to say like, but even if they didn't, it's pretty cool, right? I mean, like you saw it, you know, I, I've written stories and people go like, oh, I loved when you did this. And I was like, oh, shit, I didn't know I did it. But like, yeah, I kind of did because, you know, some of creating, creating and writing is, is you know, subconscious. Some. So I always thought like, that's a great question. And does it matter? You know, does it matter if they're an engineer? Yeah. I mean, if you're reading that, that whether or not. So I always thought that was a great conversation to have. And it was not always, but very often, because first of all, it also tells you they're thinking deeply about the thing they're reading and what you're telling them. If they were just spaced out like, yeah, whatever, well, this is going to be on the test. Like those guys are awful, but these guys are like, wait a minute, really? You really think you meant that? And I don't know. That was a long tangent, but I, I but I think it's cool. So you're forcing them or asking them to think about the ethics of what they're doing with technology. Right. I can give them the power to create that structure. I can give them the authority of doing something radically new. I've come up with this field that I'm calling ethical technology. The reason that I've come up with that field is because I've seen a, I track the job market in tech and I've been doing it now for five or six years. So every time that LinkedIn or Indeed or any of them gets a new job with one of my keywords, it sends me an email. I put it in an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and we've been doing some studies thinking about the development of the field and a rise in what I would qualify as ethical technology jobs, the chief ethics officer at Salesforce. And I wanted to understand what those jobs actually look like, what they actually do, whether or not we can have some, I think, agency in crafting those jobs so that they're not just kind of platitudinal jobs, but actually real effectual jobs. And what an ethical technologist as a person trained to do that job might need in terms of the skills, what kind of environment would produce that. Now, I'm at a polytechnic university. And so it is not taken for granted across the campus that ethics is something that, for example, an engineer ought to ought to learn. But I think that increasingly uh, folks at a university are interested in acknowledging at least the reality that the major questions of the 21st century in the next couple decades, at least, are not going to be primarily technological. Can we do this? But rather ethical. That's the question of should we do this? And particularly in the absence of regulation on the level of government, the ethical questions and getting the ethical questions right now falls as an onus on the companies. And there's a really kind of large slap on the wrist that you get. <laughs> I would say it's more than that, but sometimes it can be a bit of a punishment if you get it wrong. So I think that there is on some level a good faith effort. Now, whether or not that good faith effort is going to be successful, whether or not ethics can be something that you can kind of prosthetically attach after you build a company or whether it needs to be thought about in the construction of a company is yet to be determined. But I think that the manifesto is a good attempt to for the students to proactively define what an ethical technology environment looks like from their end, what kinds of things they need from an administration to care or to, to do these things, what kind of ethical concerns they have, what they want from their fellow students, what their vision of a space that would create a culture of ethical technology would look like. And this is a document that doesn't really exist yet. Now, it does exist because I did it last year. I do different assignments every quarter, and this is something that I did last year in 2020, so we're doing it again in 2021. But I think that articulating that vision and getting that vision from the students would be tremendously helpful for somebody like me, who is right now in the middle of an attempt to create an ethical technology vision. Wow. Yeah. I, that's really amazing. I, now that I'm learning what you do, I, I'm even more amazed. I, I think, do you think that until now, or up until this point, engineers or hackers would have just rushed headlong into, if we can do it, let's do it, and never stopped to even think about it, and then arrived at the problems like, oh, wow, there are some negative connotations. So the idea is to get people thinking about this even before they create or as they create, think about the ethics of it. 
sometimes CEOs will contact me and they'll ask me, well, how should I make my company ethical? And I say, I don't want to tell you what to do, but here's eight questions that I ask when I'm thinking about whether or not a product is ethical. And I give them that eight question list. And I think it's been really helpful, uh, at least from their perspective, to think about that. The eight questions are just for your reference and I'll send them to you too. Uh, One, who will be using this product as widely as possible, preferably, and how? Two, how well does this product translate across different cultures, communities, and subgroups? Uh, Three, what cultural sensitivities might or must this product navigate? Four, what harm could this product potentially cause? I don't think we're in charge of figuring out all of the spectrum of harm that a product could cause, but there's some reasonable, I think, guesswork that we could do to figure that out, and I think we're responsible for doing that guesswork. Uh, Five, what historical wrongs does this product address or encounter? Six, what populations might be made vulnerable through the use and distribution and possible misuse of this product? Uh, Seven, what good does this product enable? And I ask my students to not abstractly use the term good. I I talk to people when I talk to CEOs about not abstractly using the word good, because if we abstractly use the word good, you can use good to define uh, good as, you know, I actually make people's lives in the disability community better, or you could use good as, well, I actually generate more venture capital. So you want to define good in a very specific way. And then the last one is the one that I'm adamant about. How does this product engage with and cohere to factual reality? So in other words, if you have a product and you think your product is doing this, but all the evidence shows that it's actually doing that, then your product does not do this. It does that. But then you can abdicate all responsibility and say, yeah, the world is just, it's neither good nor bad. It's just, this is how it is. It's just evil. It's just raw. It's brutal, right? It's just And then you go, well, then why should I feel like I got to be any better? Like this is, there is no meaning to this. There is no, it's just, you know, you might get hit by a truck or you might not. You can see the attempt for poetic justice of some form or another, because that's easier. And I don't think that the premise that not everything works out for the best and some evil is just really evil necessarily logically deduces to, well, then we can just behave however. I think that that is an illogical next step. To say that not everything works out for the best does not mean that we ought not to strive for certain things to not become true. That isn't an abnegation of responsibility necessarily, but it is deeply unsettling. My thinking on this both comes out of writing quite a bit and thinking about how I write and what it means to create a vision that I share in language for somebody else to be able, with as little interference as possible, to be able to grasp what I'm trying to say to them. And it also comes out of, you know, my, my research and my background is in human rights. And when I talk and when I think about human rights, you know, the, the piece that I think has informed much of my thinking is a piece that I wrote on Adolf Eichmann. And I went into Hannah Arendt's archives and I looked at uh, her research for the Eichmann in Jerusalem book that she wrote. And a lot of it was all on Eichmann's cliches and how by leveraging these cliches, he actually stopped himself from thinking. And when I think about the way that a cliche actually functions, I spend a lot of time thinking about this. What a cliche does is a cliche is a well-worn phrase that we use so that we don't have to have an original thought. So we can actually skip over the work of doing that. When you see a cliche, when you read, you actually skip over the thought because you don't have to process whether or not it's true, whether it's factual. You say, ah, yeah. So for example, you know, I talk about how I think actually those kinds of well-worn wisdom that we pass on in the form of cliches can tend to do a lot of moral damage. I'll give you an example, one that I think has done more moral damage than probably any other piece of non-hate speech language. And 
that is the phrase, um, everything works out for the best. Can you imagine, Dan, saying to a woman who has just watched her house been bombed in Syria with her kids inside, don't worry, everything works out for the best. Or, or somebody just lost somebody in COVID, everything works out for the best. Or a woman who has just had her child be thrown into a fire pit in Auschwitz, everything works out for the best. Really, I, I think that that's a phrase that stops us from actually asking a metaphysically deeply unsettling question, which is, gosh, this world doesn't seem very, to be very just or very fair. And sometimes terrible things happen to good people, not because they've done anything wrong, but because this world is deeply unjust. And sometimes there is deep evil in this world and we don't know where it comes from. And so we just say, everything works out for the best <laughs> to try and kind of retroactively skip over that unpleasant metaphysics. Do you think it's difficult to define ethical when someone says, what can I do to make my company ethical? Are there different people have different definitions and that could both be legitimate? Totally. I, so let me address that in two parts. The first is that ethics is a very broad tradition and many of the great thinkers in ethics disagree with one another. So for example, some people think that utilitarian ethics is a way to go. Some people think that consequentialist ethics is a way to go. And then some people say that ethics is a deeply kind of intentional dimension. Those are just three in the realm of a certain strand of continental thinking. So even the best thinkers have disagreements. But the second part of the, the answer is that just because there is no consensus exactly as to what ethics means does not mean that there are not better or worse answers to moral questions. So I'm not a moral relativist. I don't think that ethics is just somebody's opinion. I actually think that there are better or worse answers to moral questions. And I think that if we puzzle over it, we'll probably get more better answers than worse answers. And I think that it's actually our obligation to puzzle over it, to spend some time thinking about it. And I don't think that it's something that you can append at the end of building a company or a product. I think it's something that has to be built in and intentional from the very beginning. Switching back to Gavin Bilson, because I want to press on him a little bit. The idea of Gavin Bilson starting an ethical technology movement, and uh, by the way, spoiler alert, by the end of the show, he winds up a professor of ethical technology at Stanford University. It's funny, right? <laughs> We're laughing. Until you realize the shades of that truth really happen. I'm starting to see actors who have participated in unethical technology, oftentimes making a fair amount of profit from it, then show up on ethics task forces or on boards or write ethics think pieces or fund ethical technology initiatives at universities. And just a statement of clarity, uh, I'm not considering opening up the Facebook Center for Ethical Technology at Cal Poly. What's your take on this? You see people like Gavin Belson sort of embracing ethics as a way to like whitewash their reputation or... Yeah. Or I see them being taken seriously on ethics boards. Yeah. And I wonder why. I don't know. Maybe just because they're successful and they're rich and they're famous. Maybe people, everybody wants to have this big name person on their board. I mean, I don't think, you know, Harvey Weinstein gets invited to a lot of those or Jeffrey Epstein when he was a lot. Oh, maybe he did. But I mean, you know... Uh, yeah, they're probably, you know, marginally sort of decent people, maybe. I don't know. Like, who would be an example of somebody that you've seen in that situation? I'm trying to think. Like, I do see them showing up to now fund ethics projects or be interested in having a ethical something or other named after them. So is it as simple as they kind of want to whitewash? Or do you wonder, I wonder if like, they want to have a say in ethics, but they want to be their ethics. Like if we were going to talk about ethics, then I better get my voice in here and, you know, I'll absorb this and, and impose my will on it. So here's my definition of ethics. And I have a lot of money, so I can kind of 
push that on others. Maybe it's that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think one thing that Gavin Bilson potentially clarified for me is that ethical technology has become a kind of currency at this point. To say that you have a specialty in ethics and technology might be a new way of claiming a kind of place in the power system. So that's my super kind of cynical taste on it, which of course would implicate myself. I got to get in on this though, because now that you think about it, it's, it's great, right? I mean, can you, is this like the gravy train? You just, you know, get into ethics and technology? Um, I don't know. I guess maybe it's a response too, because big tech is getting so beaten up for being so bad. I mean, we haven't even talked about dodging taxes, which is another thing that drives me out of my mind that they want to be, we're ethical and we're good citizens, but oh, by the way, you know, we do bend ourselves into pretzels. So we don't, we don't pay any taxes. Yeah. I wouldn't even want to pay for the stuff you give us. We don't even pay for the services we get. Like Apple, you know, relies on the fire department and everybody else in Cupertino, but they also are like, well, you know, if you don't give us a big tax break, we might move somewhere else. And it's like, wow, dude, like, really, really? That's or anyway, Amazon a few years ago when they went around making the poorest cities in the United States compete to get the Amazon second headquarters and, and like Newark, New Jersey is like throwing themselves at Jeff Bezos feet, you know? And of course, the press is Jeff Bezos brings jobs to New Jersey. And I was like, well, you could bring jobs and be decent about it. You know, in fact, you could do the opposite. You could look around at which cities really need help the most and go, I think I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to that one. That, that's one where I can really have some impact. And it's just, I'll tell you, I thought of this earlier when you're talking about diversity and women and, and childcare. I, a true story, someone I know who worked at Apple, you know, when they made the spaceship campus, and Tim Cook was showing this person, wow, look at this. Look at the spaceship. It's got this and that. And look at this gym. Look at this gym. This gym is amazing. It's got this and that. And the other person is a woman. She's like, yeah, dude, where's the child care? And he's like, uh, we don't have to. She's like, because I don't care about the gym. What would matter to me is if I get a child care. And his response was, yeah, but we have a gym. Yeah, but look at this shit. <laughs> like this goes to 11. Well, it's a really interesting way of keeping women with children out of the workforce and making sure that you keep younger people who are childless and maybe can work longer hours in that workforce. And it is a systemic way, it seems to me, of giving platitudes about kind of employment benefits while withholding the things that actually people who are underrepresented in that community seem to actually need. I mean, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard stories of like the woman who gets pregnant and then suddenly is underperforming and gets fired, right? I mean, it's not very well hidden. They don't really do much of a good job of like, you know, you know, <laughs> covering it up. One last question. You're a writer and talked a lot about ethical technology manifestos. What would you put in an ethical technology manifesto if you were writing satire? <laughs> That's an evil question because I'm not good at thinking on my feet. I'm the kind of person like four hours from now, I'm going to come up with it and be like, oh, that was it. So what would I say if I was writing satire and I was writing an ethical manifesto, if I was, I, I'm doing satire, I'm doing satire about someone who thinks they're very ethical, but they're really not, right? I don't know. Yeah, I, I you, first of all, yeah, you do cliches, like you said, and like they did in Silicon Valley, right? You'd have... You'd have empty, meaningless platitudes. I think you'd have ways that almost make you the victim or make you the hero. You know, like you would take child labor in China and turn it into like growth job creation, you know, things like that. I don't know. Four hours from now, I will email you a zinger. I promise you. We'll put that in the manifesto. Talk to me four hours from now. Dan, thank you very much for the conversation. 